Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Vivian Williams. We recorded this in her home a couple weeks ago in Seattle, Washington. Before we get started, I just want to remind all my banjo-playing listeners that I have an instructional video series over at pitchforkbanjo.com, and I teach one-on-one lessons in person and via Skype, so follow the link in the show notes and sign up or contact me for some lessons. Let's play some banjo. Stick around afterwards, and I'll tell you how to keep up with this week's guest, but first, here's my interview and jam with Vivian Williams. Enjoy. Welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Hello. What did we just play? What was that? That was called the Tennessee Gray Eagle, and it's a tune that I got from a fiddler named Jim Hurd. He was from uh, the Ozarks in Missouri, and he lived in uh, Kennewick, Washington, and he passed away a few years ago, Mm. but uh, it's a very cool tune. I guess it's one that he got from his family. They were originally from Tennessee. Where is Kennewick? I've heard that name a lot, but I don't know if I've actually been there. It's eastern Washington. There's Pasco, okay. Kennewick, Twin Cities. It's near Pasco. Yeah, near oh, Pasco. Very good. Very good. Okay. And how long was he in Washington? Oh, for a long time. I think I, I don't know exactly. I don't remember, but I think he might have moved to Washington in the 50s or 60s. Hmm. I've been trying to figure out what Pacific Northwest old-time music is, maybe particularly Oregon, because that's where I grew up, and I somehow evaded any sort of cultural hand-me-downs of, you know, old-time music. There was no fiddle tradition that was visible in my town, in Portland or in Hillsboro, mm-hmm. and um, at the time that was available to me, and there's been some interesting discourse lately about the ideas about, you know, ownership or appropriation and you know it's it's all very complicated and it's all gotten me thinking like what is like my you know heritage of the what or at least what is the heritage of the place where i was raised and were people playing banjo and fiddle and i've been trying to figure out the answer to that 
and I have had some success. But one name that keeps coming up every time I talk to people out here about who can answer this question for me is Vivian Williams. You should go talk to Vivian Williams. <laughs> she knows what's up. <laughs> well, I don't know if I know what's up. I mean, one of the problems is how do you define old time music? Great question. I mean, does it have to have a, have to have a banjo in it? Does it have to have a southern flavor to be old time? Some people think it does. I happen to not think so. Although I used to think so. I mean, I liked that stuff a lot. You know, the southern flavor and the banjo and everything is wonderful. But there are all sorts of flavors of old-time music. And there's been old-time music in the Pacific Northwest since pioneer days. Yeah. Because, I mean, well, how, can you, how can you say that some old guy that came out here in 1860 and played fiddle for dancing? You know, right. How can you say that's not old-time? Of course. Yeah, I, I guess um, there's been. I have, sometimes I feel like there's sort of a, a weightlessness to some of the like pioneer culture of the Pacific Northwest, um, or just anyone out here who's not indigenous, because it's not like we came from here. Yeah, <laughs> and we probably like most of the non-indigenous people probably came from somewhere else in the states. Um, probably. And, uh, either we did or our folks did. (laughs) We did or our folks did. Exactly. Yeah. And all all sorts sorts of directions, all sorts. There are a ton of people from the Midwest, a lot from new England, uh, and then people from various foreign countries. Yeah. Like Canada. Yeah. Well, Canada, (laughs) I was thinking of, you know, Sweden, Norway, (laughs) whatever, England, Ireland. Um, but, uh, there were some from the South, not a lot, but there were some. Interesting. Uh, is that because of like the Oregon Trail? Like maybe the the like Southern Midwest in the Midwest. Maybe there was more of a movement to come out here and therefore bring the music with it than people who are a little bit more stationary and. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. The South. Yeah, they were a little bit more mobile. I mean, they, when they got to the Midwest, they were one generation away from a pla- another place anyway. So sure. And there were there were a lot of people that sort of came from the east coast to the midwest and then the next generation picked up and moved to the far west right it was kind of an interesting pattern yeah. that, that came of sort of a migration pattern yeah so my my feeling that i've gotten so far is that maybe the like pacific northwest old time sound is a little bit wider than it is deep unless you can say like no there's like there are some through lines that you can that you can track, or there, there is a style or a... a... I, I think what happens is, you know, in pioneer days, the population was thin. Sure. And so, let's say somebody says, hey, you know, we should have a, we should have a dance. So, here's a fiddler from who knows where, from Boston. Sure. And, you know, well, we can't just have a fiddler. That's too much work. Let's go find some other musicians. So... So, you know, here's a here's a piano player. I mean, if they had a piano, maybe a pump organ would be more right. likely from, you know, Minnesota. And, uh, you know, and then you might have another fiddler from some other part of the country. And they say, okay, we got three musicians. That's enough. Let's, let's put on this dance. And so they have to figure out what repertoire they have in common. Right. Or what, what they can easily pick up from each other. Sure. And so, you know, and this happened over and over and over again. And so you get a kind of a synthesis going on. Yeah. And there are people 
who claim I, I who claim there, there there was an actual style or at least a kind of a feeling that came out of this. Now, sure. I, I'm not sure that I can identify it, but right. But I can hear a fiddler sometimes and say, "Well, that sounds like one of those old old guys from out here," you know. Huh. But but it's very hard to define. One of the things is. A lot of the tunes that came originally with a lot of ornaments, the ornaments disappeared. Right. You know, because you just sort of pick up the basic tune if you're doing it on the fly. They got dropped somewhere on the trail. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when you're picking up a tune on the fly right. like at this hypothetical dance situation that I, that I outlined, you know, you're going to pick up the basic tune. You're not going to pick up all of the rolls sure. and trills and all that, all that stuff that might, you know, if the guy was from Ireland, you know, all of that stuff sort of... Yeah. <laughs> Went out. <laughs> are are there any? I know that today we're going to play a couple, you know, composed tunes. Right. One of them from you, and one of them I think from someone else. Yeah. Um, but uh, other than those, do you know of any versions of older tunes or any tunes that are unique to the area? For instance, Ooh. the Sourwood Mountain that's on dance music of the Oregon Trail. Yeah. Okay. I've never heard that Sourwood Mountain before. Oh, well, I swiped that from a fiddler from Kentucky. Okay, so. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I probably simplified it way down, you okay. know, because I, I, it's one of the early tunes that I learned. I learned it from, uh, oh, Buddy Meredith. Is that who I got it from? Huh. And he was at Weezer one year. Interesting. You know, and... and but then I played it for years and didn't necessarily listen to the original, you know. Yeah. So it just came out. The way I play it now. Right. So I guess, I mean, that's another point to make, is that anything you'll be playing today is Pacific Northwest old-time music because you're playing it. Yeah, and, and, I, and I'm not trying to reproduce sure. note for note and inflection for inflection what anybody else, you know, the person yeah. I got it from. I'm not trying to reproduce that exactly. Are you from here? Yeah. Well, Tacoma, close enough. Tacoma, very close. Tacoma. Yeah. 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 Went to college in Portland. Which one? Reed College. <gasps> Reed College. Yeah, very and, good. And I'm got very familiar with it. Phil and moved to Seattle and yeah. been here ever since. What did you study at Reed College? History. History. Did Reed College have the same like reputation or similar reputation as it does today? Well, back then, it was much easier to be weird at Reed. Okay. <laughs> because, <laughs> because everyone's course, weird there now. <laughs> everybody. I mean, it's yeah. totally insane now. Yeah. But... Back then, well, back then Portland was very conservative. Okay. And what you know, I mean, this is we're talking the late fifties, so okay. the, the term was they were very square. Uh huh. And so all you had to be was a little bit politically unorthodox, sure, and a little bit intellectual, you know, and then you were already weird. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to. You didn't even have to dress weird to, to be considered weird. But anymore, Portland has gotten so weird that Reed College is still trying to stay weirder than the rest of Portland. <laughs> it's, it's getting impossibly hard. <laughs> right. Would you consider um, the late 50s version of Phil and you to be weird? Were, were you we like were weird, weird yeah, by Portland we, standards? We were weird by the standards of our respective high schools. Okay. And uh, yeah, by Portland's. I mean, I, I wore my hair long and funny, you know. And, sure. And there was this big fad. I remember 
where we would wear sneakers with holes in them. It's kind of like the thing about jeans. I'm doing that right now. (laughs) But sneakers with holes in them. I mean, this this is the tennis shoe kind of sneakers, not the not the uh, you know fancy running shoes and stuff that they have now. Sure. And you know, so you'd have you let the holes grow and grow and grow until the things hardly stayed on your feet. Right. You know, so that was weird. It was just kind of a local fad, you know, and and we all did it because it was part of the identity, you know. Yeah. Did did uh, playing old time music, heavy air quotes, uh, start around that time or before? Well, okay. My particular background in yes. old time music is very very thin from back then uh, until we got to to Seattle, and so um, let's see. I've, I've, I this is this is the most authentic part. My dad played a little bit on the harmonica. Okay. And he taught me to play Golden Slippers, sure. Oh Susanna, and Turkey in the Straw on the harmonica. Yeah. So that's totally authentic, you know. Right, yeah. Down, passed through the family, blah, blah, blah. I didn't think anything of it. It's just some weird stuff that my dad right, did. Right, just you know? the, the, <laughs> the basic, like, big minstrel pop songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. sure. And then I took violin lessons, and uh, my violin teacher gave me it was either the Rollins collection or the Robinson one I can't remember it, well it wasn't thousand fiddle tunes but it was exactly the same kind of material sure. and so I learned you know speed the plow and devil's mm. dream and a few other t- tunes out of that and he was giving them to me I think more as as technical etudes than as you know some kind of music that he sure. believed in in fact can I tell my total humil- humiliation story okay this is, if anybody that's known me for a while has heard this story at least once, but it's one of my... I can't favorites. wait. <laughs> okay, so I was in the junior high school orchestra. Junior high school was the same, almost the same as middle school. It was 7th, 8th, ninth grade. Okay. And um, so it's, it would have been 7th or 8th, probably 8th grade. And so the orchestra leader, the orchestra teacher, was my violin teacher. Yeah. And so I was right there in the front. I was in the first first stand... And uh, we're playing one of, you know, whatever, I don't know, Leroy Anderson tunes or something like that. Just just weird, weird stuff that the high school, uh, junior high school orchestra played. And we're, we're practicing it, you know, and uh, Mr. Maine, that was his name, he stopped, he stopped the orchestra and he points at me and he says, Vivian, stop tapping your foot. You look like some kind of old-time fiddler. <laughs> I was mortified. Totally mortified. Well, I'm proud of you. <laughs> That's Thinking lovely. back on it is, you know, pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> but at the time, it was awful. <laughs> and then... You and... can't do that in an orchestra. <laughs> it's a you big can. no-no. It's, it's, totally, it's totally forbidden in an orchestra. <laughs> you know, you don't tap your foot. Um... Okay, so then I continued with violin lessons all the way through high school and into college as well. But when I got to read, and, and this is back to the topic of read college weirdness, yeah. uh, Pete Seeger gave a concert there. You know, by Portland standards, that's a pretty radical thing because he yeah. had been blacklisted and right. all of this stuff, you know. He was a dang commie. Yeah. <laughs> So I went, well, Phil had gone to his concert the year before, because he was one year ahead of me at Reed, yeah. and he dragged me to this thing, and I was totally blown away. And yeah. this was my first introduction to American, I, I don't know if it's old time, folk, traditional, you know, I don't know what the sure. right word is, but whatever. 
to, to something that was, you know, the real thing or pretty close to it. Yeah. Banjo, wow, how exciting is that? Sure. I didn't have a clue about fiddling yet, you know, <laughs> except for my humiliation thing. Yeah. And um, so... But there were other people there that, that knew a little bit more, and I was sort of, I knew a little bit about international folk music, and we did folk dancing, and so I just, there was a kind of a, kind of a beginnings of a folky scene happening there. Hmm. And then, when uh, I graduated in 1959, got married, we moved to Seattle, and there we met a guy named Erwin Nash, who was a pretty good banjo player and he had met the people from Darrington, Washington and that's all North Carolina people and most of them are from western North Carolina from around Sylvie it's spelled Silva but they pronounce it Sylvie why did people from that area all decide to go to that area in Washington? well it's logging Okay, so well, there's a specific connection. Specific connection, yeah. A job, and, and there were people. There were people that, that you know they practically commuted, you know, back and forth. Interesting. And so this was a this was a community of mostly people from that part of North Carolina, and they had a ton of music. Now they had their own definitions of what kind of music was. They didn't say this is bluegrass and this is old time. Sure. They just said. This is our music. Or yeah. if they gave it any other definition, they might say, this is hillbilly music. Sure. And there were old-time banjo players, there were bluegrass banjo players, and there was that kind of in-betweenish stuff, you know, like Snuffy Jenkins, that kind of mm. three-finger picking that's old-time yeah. rather than bluegrass. Sure. And there was just all of that stuff happening there. Some great singers and uh, some... Um, Good backup guitar players, not fancy guitar players, because that wasn't a thing back then. Right. Um, and um, they had a, a couple of people from that community that, that played a little bit of fiddle, but not much. They, didn't, they had had one fiddler, but he had moved away. I think I heard him play once, and that was it. And they needed a fiddler. And I could play the violin... And uh, so I figured, you know, well, actually, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself on the story. Um, I didn't know anything about fiddling when we first got to Seattle. And what I, what I heard in bluegrass fiddling, I didn't like because it was pretty harsh and all sure. those slidey, bluesy double stops and all that stuff. I mean, to my classically trained ears, that was really weird stuff. <laughs> So I didn't care for it, but then I heard a Mike Seeger record where he plays old Molly Hare and yeah. a total t kindergarten tune, yeah. nothing to it. Yeah. And I heard that and I said, well, that's kind of nice. I could learn to do that. Yeah. And so that was my first fiddle tune that I learned was a simple version of old Molly Hare. You know, and then I then I sort of picked up on some other stuff, and I got a little more tolerant of the bluegrass thing, you know, just sure. listening to more records. But this is all off of records. Yeah. And so, th so then getting back to where I was, so these people in Darrington, you know, we had jam sessions, and we would do performances with them, usually like a benefit for the Boy Scouts that was given at the local Grange Hall or whatever. And they needed a fiddler. And so there I was, you know, and so I got okay, I guess I'm a fiddler now. And uh, they put up with my 
weirdness and the fact that I was a woman playing music in public, that was pretty weird. Really? Yes, they're, they were very, very conservative community. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. there weren't... Uh, there were women musicians, but they didn't play out in public. Where did they play? At home. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And they... I mean, did you get, like, side-eye from them, or were they... They put up with me. A, they needed a fiddler, and B, I was married and I was with my husband, so that was okay. Right, you were, like, a plus one. And so, you know, they would have these parties and jam sessions, and the women would all be in the kitchen, you know, talking about whatever, and the men would all be in the living room playing music, and I was in the living room with the men, and that was weird. Yeah, did you... So you you said that the, the men tolerated you or put up with you or and the women tolerated me yeah i guess that was my follow-up question yeah, yeah did yeah they were fine they were, were they fine like... with it because i was with phil so that made it right okay. so you weren't like a threat because no, you I were was, like I some single woman i was, I was <laughs> weird right i was weird but not a threat so <laughs> i'm used to being weird i was weird in high school when i was at reed everybody was weird you know compared with the rest of the community so i continued to be weird so that's fine good <laughs> And I was a city girl. I mean, you know, Phil and I were both city. But sure. they put up with Phil because, A, he was a pretty good musician. B, he had a PA system. And if they needed a PA system, he right. could bring it up and run it Very for good. Him. So, you know, so we were we were useful. Yeah. Besides, you know, we thought, I guess we were pretty nice. I don't yeah. know. Being weird and useful together yes, is a good combo. Good. Excellent. Will you throw another tune at me? And then I have a lot of follow-up okay. questions on this old-time story. All right. What should it be? Well, let's uh, let's get to that back to that pioneer thing that we were talking yeah. about a minute ago. Okay, so in um, on Christmas Day, eighteen sixty-two, Henry Van Asselt and Catherine Jane Maple got married in a little cabin down on the Duwamish River, which you know, right, just about where the Boeing plant is today. My understanding is that the Duwamish is like one of, or the tribe in this general area. Yeah, and we're in Seattle right yeah, now. Yeah, Seattle. Yeah. Right. And their their main main river that they were on was the Duwamish River. Okay, very good. And which tune is this? Okay, so um, anyway, this this was uh, I said Christmas Day, eighteen sixty two, and the bride's brother wrote an account of the wedding, which got published in uh, the Seattle newspaper in something like 1904 or something like that. And I managed to get hold of a copy of that article. And he lists some of the tunes that were played. So one of the tunes that he lists was The Unfortunate Dog, which is also known, uh, Joke on the Puppy, uh, and Rystra. And I guess I was unaware that those are all the same tune. I've it's heard all the same tune. Well, titles. it has words. It has words. Okay. Sort of scatological, you know, not suitable for mixed company. Okay, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I used to, I used, we used to do these historical shows, uh, and I talked about this wedding, and I'd play the tune, and I'd tell people at the, at the show that uh, 
this has scatological words, uh, unsuitable for mixed company, but you can come up to me after the show and I, I'll let you know the words. You know, iTunes, nobody ever did. Okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> iTunes has an explicit tag. Do you want to tell us what the words are of this tune? You don't have to, but I'm very curious now. Dog shit a rice straw. Dog shit a... <laughs> <laughs> dog shit a... Let's see. Dog shit a rice straw. Dog shit a needle. Dog shit a... Little boy playing on the fiddle. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. Yes, and so, uh, yes, and I mean, strange. Very strange. Very strange. <laughs> that's the joke on the puppy. That's the joke on the puppy. Wow, I mean, it's, it's totally bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> uh, wow, I'm not going to be able to not think about that now when we play this tune. Okay. Do you play it in... Uh, I play it in D. In D, yeah. Although we used to have arguments. Is this tune really in D or is or it in a? a? Because it ends in A. Right. But I, it feels to me like the center of tonality is D. And uh, I, at the time that I, the, that I wanted to play the tune in these shows, I had heard the tune, but I had never learned it. And I didn't really want... You know, I didn't really care to learn it at the time because the first part is, is pretty much like a fork a deer, and I already knew fork a deer, and I, you know, who needs another tune that starts out the same way? Sure. But then I heard Lee Stripling's version, and his first part is quite different and really nice, although the rest of what he plays for that tune is impossibly crooked, so I, sure. I had to straighten it out. I mean, I, I my mind doesn't go... I, I can handle a little bit of crookedness in a tune, but, you know, insane crookedness is not part of my... <laughs> DNA stripling levels of crookedness. Oh my no thanks. <laughs> so I have my own. I just sort of cobbled together a version out of all sorts of different versions that I ran Wonderful. into, both in books and on recordings. Because it was on record that that was the tune that was played at the wedding dance, but there, it's not like there was a audio recording. Obviously, yes. it was a bit early for that. Yes. And who, who knows how Miss Jake Lake was the guy, the fiddler? Jake name. Lake. Jake Lake. Okay, very good. And who knows how he played it? Nobody knows. Me version. 
the Very good. joke on the puppy. Joke on the puppy, or what was the name that was listed? The unfortunate dog. The unfortunate dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's such a cool tune. Well, so uh, you were in. We, you you were hanging out with this with this crew of North Carolina North Carolinians. Right. North Carolinians, I that's guess how, that's how the, you, one the proper would say it. thing. Yeah, and, and you were being uh, tolerated, even though you were being a woman playing a woman out and, about. and a city woman, and you know, with my hair weird and everything. I mean, I was very weird. Did you ever get to like play with any of the women, or get because you said that some of them were? Pl- we didn't even played. know that they played until right. later. Interesting. Yes, that, wow. that, that was totally private. Their their whole their whole music huh. their musical life was very private. Interesting. interesting. Totally family oriented. Well, um, so they used to have a celebration. Maybe they still do a thing called the Timber Bowl, and it was an annual thing. And it was about logging, and they'd have a parade, and the, and then they would have a, a music performance that was a they called it a fiddle contest mm. it wasn't a fiddle contest because there were hardly any fiddlers there was there was you know me and then well it was basically me <laughs> at the time but it was it, it was a, sort of a band contest okay and the bands that existed were pretty loosely organized and um they but they called it a fiddle contest and we w- went to one of those and there was this guy named Ray Rogers, and he had a music store in Everett. And he was a fiddler. And he played with some kind of a country band, or had played. I'm, I'm not sure if he was still active. And he entered the contest one year, and he played Listen to the Mockingbird and a couple of other, you know, not very interesting things. At least I wasn't interested sure. in that at the time. So he, But he was a local guy, and he, at that time... He was the only local fiddler that I that I heard. And I just wasn't that interested in the kind of stuff that he was playing. Mm. Um, then another early fiddle contact thing was 1962 Seattle World's Fair. And a oh. bunch of the old-time fiddlers association people from Idaho came over and played for the World's Fair. And so I was look, we were looking forward to these. Oh, wow, a bunch of old-timers from Idaho. This should be really exciting. Well, we were, looking, we were still looking for that southern flavor. Yeah. And there was very little of it. Right. And we do have a tape of it, and it's actually interesting now. Yeah. But at the time, it was disappointing. You had a specific thing in mind. Yes, we had a specific sound we were looking for because we, you know, we had this thing in our heads that somehow the southern thing is, you know, truer and more authentic and more something. I don't know, sure. whatever. Uh, so we were more interested in. There was this guy named um, Henry Vinoy, and he. Was a, he was one of the North Carolina guys, and he was pretty old and pretty crippled up with arthritis, but he could still play, you know. And so he played very simple versions, and he got together with an old-time banjo player named Roy Caudill, and they played cool stuff. So we liked that, you know. We thought that was very cool. And uh, so, I don't know. Uh, it wasn't until... Well, okay... 
this is a little bit hard to describe because I was listening to records of all kinds of fiddling. I was discovering that there was such a thing as Scandinavian fiddling, which yeah. I didn't have a clue that there was such a thing. Yeah. And Canadian fiddling. And the other thing that Phil and I were doing is we were going to the thrift stores and we were picking up 78 RPM records. And again, we were looking for this old stuff like on the anthology. But, you know, we'd pick up Don Messer records. He was a famous yeah. Canadian fiddler from where? Prince Edward Island, I guess. Okay. And, and his stuff was really popular. And so, you know, we'd pick up occasionally ones of those. And, and it, it was nice stuff. You know, it wasn't exciting, but it was nice Sure. Well, then... That's how I feel about Don Messer's fiddling. Yeah. <laughs> this is nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I have to like it a lot. But at yeah. the time, it was, yeah. you know, okay, you know, it's not my thing exactly. But sure. Yeah. So, in 1964, Phil's brother was attending law school at the University of Montana in Missoula. And he was... It, it was the end of the school year. I think he was actually getting out of law school. He was going to you know, graduate school and law school uh, in June of 1964. And he didn't have a car, hmm. but Phil's dad, who lived in Olympia at the... No, Phil's dad was already living in Seattle at the time. He had moved from Olympia to Seattle. He had a great big car, you know, a big Buick or something, just some enormous monster of a car. And so he said, why don't you guys borrow dad's car and come over here and pick me up with all my stuff, you know, and take me back to Washington. And by the way, there is this really interesting thing going, there's going to be a fiddle contest here mm. in June in Missoula. Mm. And why don't you just come on and go to that? That could be fun. And he also said, and, and he had been playing, because he was a guitar player, and he had been backing up a fiddler named Jimmy Whitner, in Missoula, in Missoula. And so we thought, oh, this sounds like fun, you know. So, okay, fiddle contest. Well, what are the rules? So we found out, okay, you have to play a waltz and a hoedown and a tune of choice. Yeah. And uh, the way it has evolved now, the tune of choice uh, shouldn't be either a waltz or a hoedown. But back then, the tune of choice could be anything. Sure. A, really a tune of choice. Yeah. And so I figured, well, I've got to learn some waltzes. So I picked, I learned a couple of Don Messer waltzes. Yeah. What the heck? Because those are nice, you know? And so I went over there, and the first thing that we did when we went to the contest, what, the first, this was before the contest had actually started, we went into the auditorium just to see what the room was like, and there was Texas Shorty, and his dad and his brother, who were both playing guitars, and Texas Shorty plays, you know, is a hell of a fiddler, and they are playing this incredible Texas stuff, you mm. know, and we are blown away. I'd never heard anything like that in my life. It's like, oh my gosh. And then the next thing that happened was we met Byron Berline, mm. and Phil's brother played guitar, and Phil was playing banjo. And so we were getting getting ready to enter the contest, and we figured, you know, we're gonna we're gonna dress and look cool. And so Phil's Phil and his brother happened to have matching corduroy tan corduroy jackets, and so they went to the local. Sounds pretty cool. Oh yeah, they went to the local <laughs> drugstore and bought matching 
string ties and uh, and cowboy hats. You Very know, so good. Re- real drugstore cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> so they're they're looking cool, right? And then here's Byron. He had just discovered bluegrass. He had just met the Dillards, and he had just recorded that record, and so he sees. The three of us, you know, I mean, I'm wearing a dress that has similar colors to what they were wearing, but he sees mostly Phil and his brother looking like bluegrass guys. So he says, hey, you guys play bluegrass? You want to back me up in the contest? (laughs) So it's like, sure, you know, Byron Berline, my gosh, because we, you know, we'd we'd heard of that record Mm because it had just come out. So um, he took us to his hotel room and he taught... Phil and his brother, how he wanted the backup to go. And so that was very valuable, and it was, you know, useful for me, too. Yeah. So um, Byron won that contest, and uh, I came in fifth. Pretty so good. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. So that was the beginning of my contest career, because at that point, we heard about Weezer, which was going to be the next week, but we couldn't go. So I, the first time I went to Weezer was 1965, and, and I've been going there ever since and only missed... Three. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yes. Did you go just this last year? I I, I entered remotely. Enter, very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good choice. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that 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 opened up a whole other world of fiddling. Yeah. And at first, I was very intrigued by the Texas stuff, but the Texas stuff that was being played back then wasn't quite as. Um, what is the word I'm looking for? As over over ornamented and overdone, hmm. and um, I don't want to say soulless, but that's almost true. You mean there's so many ornaments that you yeah. can't necessarily hear the character of the tune. Yeah, and, and it just sounds a lot of it sounds canned now. Well, hmm. well, back then, I mean, Byron was playing actually a, a sort of a souped-up Missouri style hmm. that was influenced by Texas and Oklahoma sure. stuff, but it wasn't, you know, hardcore. And then Texas Shorty was just a, a very soulful fiddler hmm. in that style, he, like like Benny Thomason. I mean, he, yeah. he, he made it. He made it talk. He didn't just play a whole bunch of fancy stuff, you know. So. Um, so I really liked that stuff, and I was intrigued by it, and I actually learned two or three tunes that way. But then I, I did get uh, acquainted with a whole lot of other fiddlers, and, and my horizons were broadening, and mm. I, was, I was realizing that there's just a whole world of different kinds of fiddling. Yeah. In, and it's, a lot of it's in the Northwest, and of course Weezer did attract people from other parts of the country, sure. too. And so, you know, that just opened my eyes to, okay, there's this whole big thing going on. Because they're the national fiddle. Quote, unquote, yeah. Right, because I'm like, who, do they just decide unilaterally? Ours is going to be the national one. Well, I always (laughs) figured that if I ever put on a fiddle contest, I would call it the Universal Galactic Championship. And then just see see the shows. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way. (laughs) Fortunately or unfortunately or yeah. whatever, I never got around. If there are extraterrestrials yeah. among us. Yeah. Maybe that'll be the thing that brings them out. Yeah. Okay, I gotta compete. It's and the then a, another person who was starting to get influential in my fiddle life back then was Frank Farrell, hmm. who was from here. He originally liked bluegrass fiddling, and he tried his hand at it. And he was playing mandolin and a bunch of other stuff, and and you know he just wasn't real successful at it. Then he moved 
to New England for a while. He, I think he was going to school there or something, and he met Jerry Robichaux, who was a hell of a Canadian-style fiddler in Massachusetts. And then Frank moved back here, and, you know, so I, I got a, a dose of that kind of music. Sure. It's like, okay, you know. This is really, it's not just Don Nestor. There's a whole world of Canadians. It's a big continent. Or not continent. It's a big country. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a transcontinental country or something like that. Sure, yeah. And so uh, we started going to some of the little fiddle contests in Kelowna and Abbotsford Mm. and uh, uh, Penticton, B.C. Because they were convenient and they were fun, you know, and we heard all of this other... Way cool stuff. And the other thing that happened was that uh, in 1970, we met Joe Panzareski. And he was a, uh, he was from North Dakota, and he learned a bunch of tunes when he was a kid from his neighbors. And then he, his, his folks were farmers, and he ran away from home because he didn't want to be a farmer. And being a farmer in North Dakota is not a, not a happy thing. And so he joined a, a, a dance band in Saskatchewan mm. and traveled around Canada. And then he ended up in, uh, in Bellingham, Washington, playing with a Pantages Orchestra. And uh, then he became an uh, engineer for the uh, Great Northern Railroad. Huh. <laughs> this is when the Depression hit. He figured, yeah. you know, okay... Dance band, making good money at a dance band is wow. over. Got to get a real job. Right. So he got a real job. How old was he when you met him? Uh, 70, or in his maybe late 60s, somewhere around there. So he'd ha- he had retired from as, as an engineer, and he was just getting back in, into fiddling. And uh, so he showed up at the Washington State Fiddle Contest in 1970. It was held in, I think, Tenino. And uh, so he was, he was amazing because he played with, he played mostly Canadian style stuff, but he played with more soul, you know, because some of the Canadian stuff does strike you as a little bit kind of cold and mechanical, or it's, at least it struck us that way. Sure. And he, there was nothing cold and mechanical about the way that yeah. guy played. Hmm. And when he played his waltzes, he just put in tons of vibrato, <laughs> In fact, Joe, <laughs> he had quite a sense of humor, and somebody asked him about his, his vibrato one time, and he says, Vibrato? That ain't vibrato, that's palsy! Because <laughs> <laughs> it was very cool. <laughs> anyway, so by, by the mid-70s, I, I think I had a what I considered a better perspective on what... Traditional or old time yeah. or, you know, I, I don't know what the correct word is. You old know, time folk musics. Or, yes, <laughs> old time musics, exactly. There are lots of old time musics and, you, and, and they may have been separate streams at one time, but they all kind of, you know, whenever they meet, they mix. Yeah. And uh, if somebody steals something from somebody else and uh, the whole thing changes and it's, it's a, a very amazing, complicated kind of a thing to sort out. Yeah. And it's... And it's it's great fun. Well, let's let's play another tune, and then I'd love to hear how you got interested in what our old time music or musics. Is okay, let's are. play a Joe Panzareski tune. Perfect. What's this tune? So this is Saint Adele's Reel. 
and uh, it's in G and D. Okay, great. And I have no idea where Joe got this tune. Okay. <laughs> uh, we got it from him. It was one of the first ones I swiped from him. But his uh, his repertoire was primarily Canadian. A lot of Canadian, and um, of course, like every other fiddler, he stole stuff from anything that sure. he heard. Sure. <laughs> I mean, he he stole some Kenny Baker tunes, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, and then he had some tunes that were uh, that were that he had learned in North Dakota from his neighbors. But I, I think this was this just sounds like a kind of a generic Canadian tune. Okay, cool. Let me uh, get in into G slash D. Okay, and uh, for this one, we'll I'll play an extra A part at the end because since it changes keys, I like to end to, in the Wonderful. same key. Great. That uh, in spite of contradance training, which means sure. everything's got to be A A B B, and you know, yeah, of course. Stuff at the end, but <laughs> I've been brainwashed. No one's contrary here. <laughs> Has that Canadian sound? Yeah. So, when did you start trying to seek out Washington State, Oregon State, or maybe just the general region of like what the tradition is here? Uh, what happened between you know your time getting exposed to all these different fiddle traditions and people telling me I need to come to you to ask you about Pacific Northwest music. Well, one of the things that happened was that um, Frank Farrell started the Fiddle Tunes Festival. Oh, very good. Yeah. And he was working for Centrum 
And he came up with this Washington Fiddlers Project thing. So he hired me and a woman named Kath, see, Kathleen or Catherine? Kathleen, I think, Oyen, who was a, uh, an ethnomusicology at University of Washington to interview various fiddlers mm. around, around, and this was in Washington. Yeah. And so we did, and it was really interesting because, of course, there were the obvious stars. I mean, there was Joe Pandoreski and Benny Thomason, but there, was, uh, there were others as well, some, whom, some of whom I hadn't paid much attention to, you know, because they were just, you know, they weren't the big stars. You know, sure. they'd show up at the fiddle shows and say, yeah, there's old Floyd. Yeah, he's cool. You know, whatever. I guess I wasn't aware that Benny Thomason had, was from Washington or moved well, to okay. Washington. Well, okay, he moved to Washington. Okay, this is, a, this is another story. Okay. Okay, so, yeah. This is, um, all right. So many things I could ask about. So, right. yeah. Okay, so this is 1972. Yeah. Uh, and Phil had started the folk life festival. Okay, you know, very Phil, good. Phil was the incorporator and sort of the, you know, the, I don't know, the, the creator, really. Yeah. And that, that's a whole story in and of itself that we don't need to go into in detail. That'll be the episode two next yeah. time I okay. come up. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so um, he, uh, John Burke was the first, um, what is the word I'm looking for, the first director of the festival. I mean, it was a temporary thing, and, and he, so this was in the, the fall of, it would have been the fall of 1971. I hope I've got the date straight. And John Burke had heard rumors that Benny Thomason had moved to Washington. Mm. And so he wanted to get money, and I don't know how all of this came about, but there was sort of a special grant of $100 to go find Benny Thomas. <laughs> so he did. He found him. And he brought him to the Folklife Festival. Very good. Well, back in those days, uh, in the early days of the festival, various organizations uh, had their, each had their own stage at the Folklife Festival. So the old-time fiddlers had a stage hmm. at, at the festival. Uh, it was always in one of those, uh, oh, those, those, the court, the, the rooms, uh, the, the Northwest Court rooms, one of those rooms. And so um, Benny shows up at the festival, and he had, okay, he, he had retired and moved to Washington to be with his son who lived in uh, Kalama, or near Kalama, in Tootle, actually, near Kalama. And... Um, he expected that his fiddling days were over. You know, he had been big champion in, in Texas for years, but uh, he figured that's it, you know, nothing happening here. So, you know, he was asked to come to the festival and to show up at a certain room at a certain time, which he did. And here is this whole room full of fiddlers, all of whom knew who he was. <laughs> so that was a big surprise for him. Yeah. So that was, that was the beginning of, of his second fiddling career in Washington, and a lot of that was mentoring young people. And, of course, he mentored them in his style of playing. Yes. I mean, and so that actually transformed the fiddling scene around here. Huh. And some people think that's great, and other people think that was a terrible thing. <laughs> so that's a whole other, a whole other topic of, of conversation. Of course. <laughs> you know. So the Washington Fiddlers... 
project. Is that what you yeah. what it was called? And so there are the big shots like Benny Thomason and and Joe Panzer- Joe, Joe Panzereski. Yeah, yeah. And who else? Who else were you able who to else? Oh, interview? Gil Kiesiker was one, and uh, and he was actually born and raised in Washington. Uh, yeah. unlike a lot of these guys. Sure. And uh, uh, Floyd Engstrom. And, uh, ooh, I am not ready for this. I, I, I haven't reviewed the names of a lot of these people. Oh, Chuck Griffin. Okay. Who was originally from Arizona. And uh, who were some of the other guys on that project that were interviewed? Uh, well, mine's gone blank, sorry. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> the best I can do right now. <laughs> so you're interviewing all these Washington fiddlers and what... Were you learning any paradigm altering thing, <laughs> altering Not, things about? Well, one of the things that I learned was that, it, and this fits in. In fact, this probably contributed to my perception of you know what the pioneer dance band would be like. I mean, if you're in a place, for instance, like Gil Kiesiker in Anatone, Washington, which is the far southeast corner of the state. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of up the hill from uh, from Clarkston, and he'd put together a dance band, and the dance band would be a fiddle, drums, saxophone, wow. and a pump organ. What kind of drums? Well, just some drum kit, you know. Cool. And and, the, and that would be a band, and it's not that that was the ideal band; it was just that that was who was available. Sure. Oh, one of the things he, that he did with this kind of a, a, a side story. Uh, where Field Springs Park is right now, he and his brother built a dance floor, and uh, and then he, he they would charge people a nickel a dance to uh, to play. You know, they Gil and his uh, other fellow musicians would play, and uh, they charged people a nickel to, to nickel dance per dance. dance on the dance on board. the dance floor. I mean, so you know, dancing on the ground is kind of difficult. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So that's right there where Field Spring Park is now, which huh. is pretty funny. So, when did uh, when did you start looking into like Oregon music? When did that enter the picture? Well, then we got interested in Oregon Trail kind of stuff. Yeah, and that was oh, I don't really know how we got into that. I, I think a friend of ours, John Ullman might have had a lot to do with it because this would be some you know a, a program that you could do in, in schools and right and the, the humanities uh, humanities Washington had some we've learned about that they had a bunch of programs that they would do in libraries right. and stuff like that so we've put together this this Oregon Trail program for for people who aren't from this area of the world listening uh, <laughs> as you might imagine, Oregon Trail stuff, at least in my experience in Oregon, but I would imagine that maybe also in the surrounding states, it was a huge part of our education. Mm-hmm. And like, this is our mm-hmm. culture and our history. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I mean, I remember it being taught uh, as if it was, it was very sanitized. <laughs> like when, yeah. I, when I was taught oh, it, yeah. I'd be curious okay. yeah. to, yeah, hear 
how Oregon Trail is being taught now. Um, but it was a, it was a big deal. So yeah, like, and, that and makes sense that it would be a program. And, and, and Washington State, you know, what's now Washington State was part of the Oregon Territory, of course, as yeah. was Idaho, and of course, you know, the whole region was Oregon Territory. Yeah, and so uh, we thought, okay, music of the Oregon Trail, and we did some research, you know, and continued to do, do research, and, and it was very cool. And yeah, it was how did very you, interesting. How did you even research that? Were there like old diaries or newspaper yeah. articles? Or, yeah, exactly. And you would just like find, do people were people transcribing their tunes or just naming the titles of tunes? And they would they would mention tunes, and then. Initially, we didn't have a lot of tunes that were, you know, absolutely documented. Sure. But you could you could guess like any Stephen Foster tune would be fair sure. game. Sure. And you know other popular tunes of the era, and then just generic stuff: Arkansas Traveler, uh, you know, Turkey in the Straw. I mean, everybody knows them now and probably knew them then. And uh, then stuff, you know, and old Joe Clark, you know, and and, yeah. and so. We did find a lot of fiddle and banjo duets kind of stuff being played on the trail itself, which was kind of interesting. And uh, But then in the communities, it would be just of whatever random assortment of sure. instruments, you know, or maybe just a fiddler all by himself or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that was a lot of fun, you know, just, just finding out more and more about that. And then one day I got a... An amazing uh, inquiry from a friend of mine who lived in um, Idaho. Uh, what what is the name of the town in Idaho? Uh, huh? Anyway, and she said that she had she had a copy of a very interesting pioneer era manuscript, hmm. uh, the Peter Beamer manuscript. Uh, and she was she had gotten she learned a few tunes from it and uh, then she wanted to know if 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 I would like her you know it was a it was a micro a printout from a microfilm copy of it and I said yeah sure whatever I didn't have a clue what this was going to be all about yeah. you know why not I'm interested in historical stuff sure. whatever so I got this uh, I got this envelope from her this I believe was two thousand. Was it that recent? It might have been that recent. I don't know. And it was this amazing thing. Peter Beamer was a musician, a flute player, actually, in a mining camp in Idaho. And uh, he put together a dance band, and he wrote down music for the band to play. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And so this was, you know, a whole... Slug of tunes, yeah. hundred and some tunes, hundred and sixty tunes or something like that. And, and he, he wrote down, transcribed. He and and some of them were there were some traditional fiddle tunes, and then there was just some regular, you know, waltzes and polkas and shadishes, yeah, and, and some uh, uh, quadrille tunes, yeah. you know, especially for the, the formal quadrilles. Huh. And it was amazing. And the band that he, that he put together was two fiddles, a banjo. A flute, an accordion, uh-huh. you know, would have been a little button accordion, and then one other instrument, but not specified. Do you know what kind of flute he was playing, does uh, it say? I would assume it would have been a wooden flute, yeah. but, you know, it's transverse flute. Neat. But I don't know. I don't know. So then that sort of turned into this 
book. I mean, I, I've, I thought, this is way too cool. So I transcribed all the tunes from his, you know, pretty, pretty reasonably good handwriting okay. into a musical music setting and, uh, and did as much research as I could about him. And I published a book. Amazing. Peter Beamer Manuscript. Where, where is that available now? Well, from Voyager Publications. Okay, Voyager very cool. And publications. And... Uh, did you find anything on there that was like particularly distinct or like a strange, like that felt like something had happened to the tunes since they were farther east or not really, yeah. not really. Cause he, he was a, he was a written music guy <clears throat> and, and he was, he himself was uh, of German descent. I don't know if he was from Germany, but he's obviously Spoke German and some of the misspellings. He, he was a good music writer, but he was a terrible, you know, writer yeah. for. He misspelled words and he would misspell it in a way that made it clear that he was German. You know, like sure. Uncle somebody would be Uncle somebody. You know, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, so he he was a, a a reading musician, right? And I found out that the banjo player actually was in also in some kind of minstrel group in that part of Idaho. So I don't know if he read music or not. And it was just a fascinating, a yeah. fascinating thing. But I, I couldn't find any, any Northwesty kind of things. But this kind of pulled me in a different direction. And that was into the fact that lots and lots of the dance music of those days was played by people who read music. Interesting. Yeah. And so that's a whole other... Integration between the uh, uh, the literate musicians and the ear musicians. Yeah, that that kind of tracks for me because my understanding of the fiddlers' associations, the state fiddlers' associations mm -hmm. around here, um, they still read from music. They have like yeah. written down versions of all of these fiddle tunes, and right. when they get together and play, they read from. The, their well, they binders. may or may not be reading yeah, from, sure. the, from the music, uh, but I mean that—that's a long tradition in and of itself. Yeah, you know. Huh. And it's like, you know, I used to, Phil and I used to laugh at the contra dance bands because they were all reading music, but they are carrying on an ancient tradition of its own. Sure. You know. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, it makes perfect sense. And interesting stuff happens when you write something down. Yeah. Because it's like, are you writing everything down? Are you when you write when you write a fiddle tune down? Unless you're writing every single stroke down, you know, in every rhythm, you're making some sort of philosophical statement about what you think the tune is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. And the the very interesting the current issue of the Washington old-time Fiddle Association newsletter. It was now online. And they, their featured tune of the month is a tune by Jack Link. And it's, uh, wait a minute, what's his most famous tune? Ah, my mind went blank again. I hate that. <laughs> no I hate worries. when that happens. You could, uh, if it comes but to But anyway, mind, it's, it's yeah. a Jack Link tune. And they have an extensive quotation from Jack Link, wherein, wherein he says, 
He wants people to mess around with the tunes and make them their own. Very good. You know, and it, and it's great. Well, Skipping Cat, Skipping Cat, Skipping Cat. Yeah, I think that's okay. The tune very that's good. On there, and uh, so you know, good for him. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't want it to be totally exactly the same as as yeah. it came out of his you know brain in the first place. He wants it to be. Messed around with, so so, and he's absolutely right. But you know, there are different traditions that have different feelings about that. And Scottish traditional, they don't even they they used didn't even used to call it traditional fiddling. They call it traditional violin playing. Sure. And they want it to be just the way it's written down. I mean, they tend to be that way. I don't know if everybody is, but but a lot of people that play that says it's got to be just like this. Right. And I've heard people. Who play southern old time music say it's got to be just like so and so's recording in 1922 right you know and I figure no it doesn't <laughs> it but, seems like those written transcriptions are maybe extra helpful for everyone who's moving over here and they're leaving they're leaving their access to oral tradition mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're they're only taking the oral tradition with them that they are able to transmit themselves, yeah. and it makes sense that whatever else that they would be bringing would have to be maybe written down, or else what are they going to remember? You know, yeah. they can't go back to grandpa and say what was that tune? How did that B part go again? Yeah, because grandpa's a thousand miles away. Yeah, yeah. What what should we play next? Oh. Good question. How about, um, uh, let me look at my cheat sheet. Pete's Breakdown. Which Pete is this? Okay, so this is, we're going to play a tune called Pete's Breakdown, and it's a Canadian tune. It was written by a Canadian fiddler named Pete Couture, and he had a dance band in Winnipeg, and he also had a radio show. I think it was a Saturday night thing, you know, and it, and it was it was dance music, plus he played, you know, it was a Western band. They did a bunch of country songs and that kind of thing, yeah. too. And um, this show went on for a number of years out of Winnipeg, and I think it was in the 40s and 50s and maybe into the 60s, I'm not sure. And w- w- when we used to go to the occasional fiddle contest in Kelowna or... Uh, or Penticton or uh, Abbotsford in southern British Columbia, one of the th- ways they ran things was that the contest would start on Saturday in the morning. So on Friday night before the contest, they would have a dance, and all the fiddlers would go up on stage, and they would all play together. And, you know, they had this common repertoire, and that they everybody knew these tunes, and this was one of the ones that everybody knew. Okay. Probably from that radio show. So it's in C, and then it goes to A minor for the second half. Okay, very good. Cool, ready when you are. Yeah. Thank you. 
Interesting tune. Yeah, so it's cool. I always, when I first heard it, I always thought it was like Ukrainian or something. Yeah, because there is a, a large uh, Ukrainian presence in Western Canada. Yeah, but uh, Pete Couture might have. Well, he was French. His name is French, and he might have been Métis. I don't know. Sure, I haven't uh, been able to find out. I uh, I especially like that part in that tune. Um, yeah, that's that's such an interesting interval kind of. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't play that very often. <laughs> very cool. Yeah, Pete's breakdown. Well, I think we have time for. I think we're gonna do two more. Okay. Uh, in the episode proper. So what do you want to do next? And then we can talk about where people can go to, you know, buy your albums or send people in, in certain directions to learn more about the regional fiddling and things like that. But what do, what do you want to play before we do that? Oh, well. So I got, we have three to choose from. Peekaboo Waltz, Peter Barnes Jig, or Frog Heaven. Well, we should... Maybe we should end on Frog Heaven. Okay. That that sounds like a, a good so, one to end so on. So we want a waltz or a jig for the odd tune. Oh, interesting. Well, I always want to rise to the occasion of playing a jig. Uh, so maybe we should maybe we should try to do that. Okay. <laughs> Key of A. Great. I'll go back up. So what's the story behind this tune? Well, um, after. Frank Farrell ran the um, um, uh, Fiddle Tunes Festival for a number of years. He moved back east, first to Massachusetts, where he was very active in the musical scene there. He's now in Maine. But this tune was written when he was in Massachusetts, and it was named for his uh, favorite piano player, a guy named Peter Barnes. And uh, I liked playing this tune in fiddle contests because there's this kind of mythology about, you know, you got to play this and that and the others to, see, and to win, yeah. you know, to do well in a fiddle yeah. contest and you better not play a jig because that's just sudden <laughs> death. And so I figured, nah, no way. So I have to play, you know, I have to play, I have Show show the colors, yeah, and play a play a jig in a fiddle contest. This is your and like wearing done, a wearing a sneaker with a hole in it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta be weird. I gotta be me, and that's weird. So, uh, but this does have a little bit of you know technical flash, and it goes Fun. up to third position. Oh my gosh, how impressive is that? <laughs> and uh, besides, it's a fun tune. I just love it. All right. <laughs> Thank you. 
always extra effortful <laughs> for me to try to, to try to jig along yeah that one has some interesting it takes it takes full advantage of the range of the fiddle it does it does it does the whole thing uh i just wanted to say on, on i was talking about jigs in fiddle contests that's in the uh texas oriented fiddle contest sure like weezer now in canada you're required to play it have to play a jig in canada for a, con- yeah. for a canadian fiddle contest yeah. A jig, a waltz, and a reel. <laughs> but you were able to make make well, I, that I mean, jig yeah, work. For, yeah, for, works for me. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I've been a judge at a fiddle contest, and I mean, it's not it's 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 not fun. I mean, it's interesting, <laughs> but it's really hard work. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous because you are trying to convert some nice music you hear into a bunch of numbers on a piece of paper. Yeah. I mean, how do you do that? It's a big ask but to it's have be, But do it's that. very, I think it's important not to bore the judges. Right. And the judges really like to hear something different. Yeah. And if it's done well, you know, it, it may or may not get extra points. I mean, if it's too, if it's too out of their, you know, sure. range of knowledge, maybe not. But uh, anyway, huh. it's, I got to do my thing, so... <laughs> Well, we have time for one more, uh, but before we introduce that, where should people go to um, get your recorded works or to learn more about Pacific Northwest fiddling or get get that book? And other books. And other books. <laughs> Anything, yeah, you want to mention? Well, there's there's one from the, uh, the most recent one is from the Aurora Colony. Okay. And they had, I mean, this is, this is getting way violin-y. Okay. But it's still dance music. Sure. So it's it's still of interest, I think. It should be of at least marginal interest. Yeah. <laughs> Some little interest to fiddlers who yeah. are interested in playing dance music. So, uh, and, and they had a, a lot of really good violinists. And so this is a selection from several different manuscripts. Uh, rather than, you know, the contents of one entire manuscript. And then there's one from the Haynes family... And they were in Oregon. They were in, uh, oh, just up the hill from McMinnville. <laughs> okay, yeah. And uh, and so there's some interesting stuff in there. So that's another pioneer. Oh, neat. Where? Yeah, where would I find that? I'm interested. Well, in. it's on the Voyager website. It's Voyager. Yeah. It's VoyagerRecords.com. Cool. And uh, everything's there. And plus, there are some articles of interest. Uh, you know, there's one about pioneer fiddlers, and it mentions a bunch of the older guys. And then there's some uh, uh, field recordings. Uh, there's just all kinds of weird stuff on there. There's, there's, check an that intro- out. there's an article that Phil wrote about bluegrass in the Pacific Northwest. Neat. And uh, there's 
bunches of stuff on there. Cool. Anything else before we do our last tune? Uh, the albums, where do people go to get those? Well, they're on that same website. There's okay, the, great. There's the catalog of CDs. Yeah. Very good. Cool. Well, what should we play for our last tune? Well, how about one that I wrote? Perfect. And this is called uh, Frog Heaven. And it, it's, it's named for a place up in Mount Rainier National Park. It's close to the road to paradise. And so that might be part of the, the reason for that yeah. name. But I think the frogs, I think that has to do with the fact that this particular place, it's a, there's a campsite there. And there's a little hiking trail that goes there. And uh, depending on the season of the year, it might be a lake or it might be a marsh. And there are lots of frogs that live there. I've never been there myself, but I know somebody who has. Yeah. <laughs> you were looking and for I, a I title. Found a, I found a, yeah, I was looking for a title. So, you know, if, if you're looking for a title for a, a nameless tune, just go to a map of Mount Rainier National Park. It's full <laughs> of interesting titles. Yeah. Frog Heaven, good Frog title. Heaven. And why did you write this tune? Well, um, when Mike Seeger was was getting ready to record his uh, third annual fair third annual farewell reunion record, in which he went around the country and recorded tunes with various friends of his, uh, he wanted a tune that hadn't been recorded before, and that I wrote, and that that was banjo-friendly. And all of the banjo-friendly tunes that I had written to, up to that point had already been recorded on the Winter Moon recording with, with Harley Bray playing the banjo. So I had to write a new one. So my first thought was, like, I can't just write a tune to order. I mean, I have to be inspired. What is this? But then I wrote it. And it turned out to be pretty, pretty much okay. Were you trying to write it, yeah, in any particular vernacular or just... Oh, just, just banjo-friendly, you know. Banjo-friendly. The, 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 right, the right kind of feeling and the right kind of chord progression. Okay, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to enjoy a banjo-friendly tune then. Perfect. Okay. Thank you, Vivian, so much for giving up a, a part of your Saturday afternoon to talk with me and show me oh, these tunes. Oh, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. Okay. Thank you. 
Everything Vivian and Phil Williams related can be found at VoyagerRecords.com. I just bought a copy of the Peter Beamer manuscript, and I can't wait to dig in. Go get some books and CDs. It's linked in the show notes. You can support Get Up in the Cool by sharing the show with a friend or sharing and liking the video posts on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, and YouTube. And if you're able, please help fund this podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash getupinthecool. Order a t-shirt, bag, sticker, or phone case at Get Up in the Cool's merch store. Visit pitchforkbanjo.com for my instructional claw hammer banjo series or to schedule a lesson with me. Check out my other podcast, Think Outside the Box Set, available in all the same places as Get Up in the Cool. And again, everything I just mentioned is linked in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to Get Up in the Cool.